As I said, these are different times and they call for different ways of interpreting the scripture. As we come into the story of Palm Sunday, that's exactly what happened. Some years ago, a researcher from Stanford University in behavioral or developmental psychology, her name was Carol Dweck, took students one at a time, elementary school, brought them into a room, sat them down, made them comfortable, and then gave them a puzzle to solve. And when they solved it, gave them another that was slightly harder. And this continued on and on. One at a time, she brought them in and she tried to probe into their responses, to their emotions and to the expressions on their face. And she made copious notes. She expected the children's responses to be literally all over the map, and they were. What she didn't expect is that those responses would fall mostly into two categories. One of them she called fixed, and the other she called growth. Some of the children, as the tests got harder, disengaged. They leaned back, crossed their arms, and started to get critical of the puzzle. They began to get angry at the examiner. They talked about something not being fair, but other students leaned in. They rubbed their hands together, smacked their lips, their eyes got bright, and one of them said, I was hoping this would be informative. I love a challenge. And Dweck began to wonder, was that second group aliens? Or were they onto something that many other children didn't know? And from that question, she devised two categories. The fixed mindset believes that one's intelligence or character or personality is fixed from birth. Therefore, the purpose of a puzzle is to test or assess one's intelligence. It is almost always a threat. One is therefore always trying to prove either to themselves or to their imaginary audience how smart they are. Will this be good or bad? Will I prove myself or will I embarrass myself? Everything was on the line when the test came. And so those students with a fixed mentality generally resisted it. And as soon as it was over, they wanted things to get back to the way they were. Those with a growth mentality believed that one's intelligence was not fixed, that the ceiling was higher than most people even knew. And therefore, the purpose of a test was not to prove one's intelligence, but to develop it, to find it, to exercise it. Therefore, situations were neither good nor bad. They just were. And one had to find in the situation an opportunity to grow. And why would they waste time proving themselves over and over when they could think about ways to grow and things to learn? Why would they surround themselves with people who built up their self esteem when they could find other people who would help them to grow. It was a completely different mindset. Coming into this pandemic, 
I began to notice the same thing, although the categories were not the same. But I noticed that the people I was talking to and the ones that I was observing were falling into two different categories and that the circumstances and their personality, even their faith, was not the deciding factor. In other words, it wasn't innate. It was something deeper than optimism or pessimism. It was a predisposition, a leaning, a bent, or a default. I began to wonder, what is the language for this? What assumptions are driving one person or another as they go this direction or they go that one? And how would I give labels to this? And then Palm Sunday. I started reading again the story of Palm Sunday, especially that from John chapter 12 and the categories started to appear. Palm Sunday is best known for the parade in which Jesus has marched down the road and he is finally given the authority and the praise that we all knew he deserved. According to the gospel of Matthew, the whole city was in an uproar on that day saying, who is this man? And according to Mark, they were throwing palm branches and their coats on the road, which was typical when royalty came into the city. According to Luke, hundreds of disciples were shouting with a loud voice and Jesus himself said, even the stones are getting ready to cry out. And according to John, the whole world had gone after him. This is his day. There has been tremendous ambivalence all throughout the gospel of John about who this Jesus was. But here on Palm Sunday, it finally appears that they've figured it out. This is the celebration. This is worship. There is joy. This is pomp and royalty. This is what Jesus deserves. What is almost always forgotten is that Palm Sunday ends in a very different place than the way it began. In Matthew and in Mark, Jesus goes straight from the parade into the temple and starts overthrowing the money changers. Now, I know you don't like money changers, but in that time, they were helping people with their acts of worship. That's what money changers did. And he went into the epicenter of their worship and started throwing things upside down. In Luke, he went to a high place and looked over the city of Jerusalem. And he didn't claim it. He didn't own it. He wept over it about what was lost. And in John, it ended with Jesus talking about his own death. Unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it remains just a seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. 
so. If you love your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life, you'll actually find it. He was speaking, of course, of his death. And in the Gospel of John, Palm Sunday ends in verse 36 with Jesus going into hiding. That's strange, isn't it? What begins as a parade turns into a revolution with the king going into hiding. It was on Palm Sunday, according to John, that a couple of Greeks, the word just means they weren't Jews, but they were at the festival and they came to Philip and said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip wasn't sure what to do, so he went and found Andrew, and then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, there's a couple of, there's a couple of guys here looking for you, and they're not Jews. I don't know what they want. And when Jesus heard it, it's like he heard a bell toll inside of him. And he said, the hour has come. It is time for the Son of Man to be glorified. Three times previous to this, Jesus has said, it's not time. It's not time. It isn't time. But when he heard this, he said, it's time. And then he said, now my soul is troubled. And that word means agitated, stirred up. In the Septuagint, in Psalm 42, the words used for waves that are colliding into one another. It's the rising of the tide, throwing everything stable into an uproar. Jesus says, that's happening inside of me right now. That's a strange way for a king to feel just hours after his coronation. So Jesus said, my soul is troubled. What shall I say? And right here, the two categories begin to appear. It seems that the road that Jesus is traveling, the one on which they threw palm branches and coats, has come to a fork. And from here, the roads will diverge. They will each go in different directions. And at the juncture down here where they come together is the question, what shall I say? Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? Or will I say, Father, glorify your name? One of these is the way of survival. Father, get me through this. Get me around this. Get me on the other side of this. Help me to overcome this. But the other is the way of surrender. Father, glorify your name. Don't worry about me at all. There is something bigger than me at stake here. It is the name of God. Father, use this 
to make yourself glorified in the earth. Both roads are open to anyone. Both roads are prayers. Both are said to the Father. Both are desirable. But only one of them is primary. There is only one that you will pursue. The other, you will just hope it happens. You'll either say, Father, save me, and I hope you get glorified, or you will say, Father, glorify your name, and I hope you will save me. It cannot be both. From here, the roads diverge. And it became clear after thinking about it that this was what I was noticing when I talked to people. Some of them had a survival mindset, which means that their idea of God was fixed. They knew that God was sovereign and all-powerful and good, but he wasn't behaving like that. And so they were upset. They were raising questions about God's character. Sometimes they were blaming God and they were dismissing God. They were accusing God. They had no doubt uh, that God was in control. They doubted his character. These people divided most of their lives into good things and bad things, and they came to those conclusions rather quickly. They could not suspend their judgment. That is to say, they had a deep sense of what was normal. When their bent or their inclination was about survival, they were talking about things getting back to normal. And Anything that didn't get back to normal was considered a loss. And so the longer this goes on, the more frustrated these people are getting because every day is a reminder that we are not in control. Their spirits are fragile. They're critical about the times, about their leaders. They say that things are unfair. They say there's something wrong. They're bitter. And the longer this goes, the more that disposition crystallizes. There was another kind of person that I talked to and it was amazing to them. They also believed that God was all-powerful and sovereign and good, but they knew that they themselves didn't know what sovereign, all-powerful, and good meant. They thought they knew, but they're assessing not the character of God. They're reassessing their definitions about the character of God, and those have become fluid. 
instead of dividing all of life into things that are positive, I'm going to remember these things are negative. I'm going to try to forget these things. These people were talking like God was in control of all things. Therefore, they didn't have a fixed view of normal. They didn't speak about getting back to normal. They talk about getting down to the fundamental. What is sure? What is trustworthy? What has God revealed? Whatever is happening. Therefore, their hearts are open to new things. They're flexible. They're adaptive. As Paul said in Romans chapter 12, they are patient in hope, joyful in affliction, faithful in prayer. Their lives move because they know that God is active in the situation and not apart from it. Well, these seem like two very different ways to me. And now you can see why personality and circumstances and not even my religion determines which way I go. What determines that is whether or not I am willing to surrender control. The way of surrender doesn't ask why are things this way? And yet that is the most common question I hear, why? The way of surrender asks what next? What is God doing? What do I want to be true of me and my family, my organization, when this is over? And even if I don't know the answer, I won't let go of the question. I keep asking it until God makes it clear. There is no single act, one thing that you can do in order to walk in the way of surrender. It's more than uh, behavior. It's a posture. It's what's inside of you. It's not just the stuff that you're saying. And while we cannot compress all of it into a single moment, I think that moment begins with a prayer of indifference. I believe every family, every team, every soul has an hour. There is a short season of time in our lives when things are very disrupted, turbulent, volatile, hard, and so much of what we become later is determined by that short season. Please listen to me. 
We're in that now. That's not coming. We're in the thick of it now. God is active in this world right now. For me to point out all the things that God is doing, I am not speaking illusions. I'm seeing with my other eye. I see the losses we're taking every day, but I also see that God is up to something that is pivotal in the life of our church, in your life, and in the life of your family. And I want nothing more for you to walk in that way. So I went back to this ancient practice that the Christians have had for years, this thing they called a prayer of indifference, when saints would gather into small groups to discern the will of God. And before anyone would start saying what they thought, they would pray and they would empty themselves of any agenda or idea that they had they would lay everything out there and just say at the end of the prayer, there is nothing we want more than we want God to be glorified. As I said, it's longer than this and more than this, but it isn't less. It starts with this. This is a time when in your living rooms, some of them I know the kids are already restless and ready to go and You've got plans that you're going to use in a moment. But if I could please get you just to stay just a moment longer. And if I could have you bow your heads with me, I want to lead us in a prayer of indifference. And I want this prayer to be your prayer for your family and for yourself. Let's pray. Father, the hour has come. Our hearts are troubled. Our lives are disrupted by things we cannot control. Every day we are reminded of a threat, of our losses, and how fragile we are. But Father, my times are in your hands. They do not belong to anything or anyone, not even me. They belong to you. If I live, I live to the Lord. And if I die, I die to the Lord. So whether I live or die, I am the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again so that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. So I come trembling, but I come. Root from my heart all those things I've cherished, all visions I've had of happiness or success or progress, these things that have become part of me. Root them out, I pray, so that you may enter and dwell in their place without rival. So I surrender my health, my career, my family, my future, my way of life, and my life itself 
I have no will but thine. Give me your will. And then, will whatever you want. That your name will be glorious. Amen.